Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today I'm talking to James Williams. We've had him on the podcast before. He's the guy who won the Nine Dots Prize and now he's written the book, Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy. It's about technology, it's about politics and it's about how we live. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I caught up with James when he visited Cambridge a few weeks ago, and we started by talking about something that I'd just read. I'd also just read his book, but I read it alongside Tina Brown's diaries of her time at Vanity Fair in the 1980s, and she describes a world that I thought sounded quite familiar to now. This is from, I think this is 1988. So she's editing Vanity Fair and she said, I've commissioned a piece for the fall issue about the new unmanageable pace of life. I'm calling it acceleration syndrome. Car phones and cool waiting and home faxes are making everything so revved up. We're going to interview some guy who intends to purchase a portable phone so that he has no dead time walking between appointments. And there's a USA Today exec who takes a tape recorder for dictation to the pool. And then she goes on like, we clearly can't live like this. It's sending us all crazy. Our brains are fried. What are we going to do? And I thought, as people often think, everyone thinks that the technology so this was faxes and yeah a guy's going to get a giant phone and he's going to carry it from meeting to meeting so you can take a call in the street we're finished we're done it's over people have always thought the latest round of technology particularly in the electrical age is going to make their lives unlivable because they've got no time left that like the time's gone 1988 we're done Now, I agree with you that this time is different, and I know the book is partly about this, but just tell us, why is this different from when people thought that faxes and dictaphone by the pool was the end? Sometimes the argument is that it makes life unlivable, and I think that's obviously false because we're We're still still, still here. here. But I think there is some validity to those arguments, you know, that like there were new kind of intrusions into these kind of attentional reserves in their life, if you will. So, yeah, so you know, the, in this case, the, the time walking it, it, from meeting yeah, to meeting was your yeah, downtime. Exactly. And, you know, this has been happening, I think, since the invention of electricity. What's different this time, I think there are a lot of things. One is that we don't have nearly enough time to adapt to the new technology until the new one comes along. So I think like the telephone, for instance, it took like 89 years or something to reach 150 million users, TV, radio, even in the late 20th century, we still had two or three decades to come to terms with them to understand their effects, figure out how it reconfigures our relations, our attentional world. So a kind of generation, effectively, a generation could evolve with the new technology. Exactly, yeah. And I think now what happens is, you know, in the course of a week, if not a day, you know, an app can go viral and completely reconfigure people's lives. And sometimes I call this, we're sort of on a treadmill of incompetence. It's like we're competent enough to do something with the technology, but we're not so competent with it that we can sort of fully master it before the next one comes along and we have to learn that. So I think that that's something that is different is just the pace of, of change. Also, you know, in traditional forms of kind of information 
technologies, so like the analog, radio, television, they were generally kind of contextually based. So you were in your car, you were at home. It was bounded in space and time somehow. With smartphones, what's happened is so ubiquitous, it's, the medium has kind of enveloped our lives. So instead of going to sit down on the couch or sit in the car and then plugging into kind of this stream of poorly optimized informational rewards coming at you, now we have this amazing stream of rewards coming at us that are like optimized by a genius artificial intelligence all the time in our pocket. So there's a difference of degree, but I think also of kind, just in terms of the persuasive power that it has and the degree of play over our moment-to-moment experience that it has. We'll move on from Tina Brown in a second, but the other reason this reminded me of you because of the last conversation we had, guess who's the person, this is 1988, guess who's the one person that she says is thriving in this new attention-poor environment? This is last name start with a T. Yeah. So she says, <laughs> she says, Trump's the guy for this new age. Trump apparently picks up every call very quickly, but cuts you off mid-sentence as soon as his secretary brings a piece of paper announcing someone else. The trick is to call him back three minutes later, just as he's got bored with whoever replaced you. That's how he operates as president, right? So some things don't change, but some things do. And he always wins every time one of these technologies comes along. He's the guy whose attention span meets the demands of the age. So you have this great image in your book, which is, it's like Tetris. Just take us through it, because I found it really compelling, because it's not, in the end, about volume. I mean, there is a kind of infinite capacity. It's about what happens when this stuff hits you and keeps hitting you. Yeah, so kind of one of the the fundamental distinctions I draw on in the book is Herbert Simon's distinction, uh, which he made in the 70s, that you know, when information becomes abundant, attention becomes the scarce resource. And there's kind of this question then of, of you know, what does it mean to say that information is abundant and with respect to kind of these new challenges of distraction and it's kind of undermining of our capacities that we face. And I don't think it's, it's just about the fact that there's more information coming at us today than there ever was in the past. So when I was younger, I was sort of really into Tetris. and To the uh, point that you flunked calculus. <laughs> I flunked a calculus test, yeah, actually in high school. And because my calculator, you know, it was not just a calculator, it had assembly programming language, and so you could download games on it and stuff. So when you play Tetris, bricks are falling from the top of the screen, and you have to stack them so that they disappear. It's not that there's sort of an infinity of bricks to be stacked that is the problem. So it's not the information or the abundance or the brick abundance, if you will. It's the, the way in which they keep speeding up over time. And at a certain point, it becomes impossible to fit them in, to, fit them in, to process, you know, to know how to stack them and where. And so then then the music stops and the game's over. Basically, the the idea that it's not the abundance of information, it's the velocity at which it it all comes at us, and that that's really what creates these problems of self-regulation at individual levels, but I think also at societal levels. One of the great things about the book is it's really personal. Actually, you tell a lot of stories from your own life and your experiences working at Google, but also with these technologies as they've evolved as a kid with a new calculator that lets you play Tetris. I think we probably all recognize, and even since we spoke about seven or eight months ago, that this is a problem is something that most people now recognize. Maybe that they didn't even a year ago or two years ago. Very few people look at this technology, the phones in their pocket, and think of this as a just an unambiguous good. And we all increasingly have a sense that something is being taken away from us. I think what your book is trying to say is that even if we have that sense, we don't actually understand what it is. Are you assuming that most people will recognize the predicament even if they don't understand what's going on? Yeah, I think I would say that we we don't have a language to describe what's going on. I think 
when we feel the negative effects of these technologies in our own lives, you know, some people call it addiction, but even if it's just sort of compulsion or distraction or whatever, we have a language for kind of talking about the way technology interrupts us or frustrates our pursuit of tasks, right? Like, you know, going to the store, cooking something at home, whatever. But I don't think we have a language for talking about the effects on longer levels. So the way in which it makes it harder to live by our values as individuals or as a society, or the way in which it sort of erodes our sense of our identity, fragments us into, you know, into groups as a society, and even in some ways undermines kind of the capacities that democracy assumes people will have. You know, when I started studying all this at Oxford, I thought there would be a kind of very well thought out foundation for talking about language and concepts of, of these broader effects. But what I found is that the language just isn't even really there at this point. And one of the things you are very critical of is the language of addiction. So there is mm. the detox, you know, you need to, we all know that we're too hooked on these mm. things. So let's have a week off. Mm. And it's moralized as well. So that the people who are really hooked are somehow weak willed, or they haven't got the, the courage to detox. You don't like the moralized language, you don't like the detox language. Just tell us why. I think it sort of assumes that the that individuals have to make this tragic choice between using technology that is sort of not fit for purpose and being kind of distracted and having these negative implications in their lives or not having it at all. Yeah. yeah, not having the benefits. And I, like to me, technology is for, you know, helping us pursue the goals, you know, that we have uh, individually and collectively. And so... And you are, to be clear, you are explicitly pro-technology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're a big fan, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think of this book and technology ethics generally not as like a, a brake pedal on technology, but like a steering wheel because technology is, is a good thing. Otherwise, what else is it for, you know, if it's not to sort of improve human life? I think on the addiction piece, there are two ways of talking about addiction. One is the everyday sense of I do something too much and I don't like that I do it that much. The other is a more strictly defined clinical standard. And I think what we've seen happen is Insofar as, as people have identified the problem in their own lives as a problem of addiction, there's been this kind of conflation between clinical standards and moral standards. So people say, oh, look, see, this person isn't addicted by these DSM criteria or whatever. Therefore, there's no ethical problem, which doesn't follow at all. Like, there's all sorts of ethical problems that come from compulsion or something not being designed well enough. So I think those who have an interest in maintaining the status quo of you know the attention economy have kind of I think latched on to addiction and made this the frame for a lot of the conversation. It's, it's actually it benefits bit, them. It's yeah. a bit like gambling in that the argument about when gambling counts as an addiction serves the interests of the gambling industry. Right. Yeah. And I know this technology, some of it is based on what we know about what attracts people to gambling, including exactly, yeah. rewards. Yeah, a lot of the psychological mechanisms are exactly the same. Yeah. So you also say that you know, another impulse here is to say this is messing up our lives, it's messing up our heads. So it must be the fault of the designers, it must be the fault of the corporations that produce these things. These must be bad people because they're, they're deliberately messing with us. Mm. And again, as someone who comes from that world, you say that's not helpful because you don't know any designers who kind of went into the business in order to screw up people's lives, that they are, broadly speaking, well-intentioned. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the, that W. Edwards Deming quote that I use sometimes, you know, bad system will beat a good person every time. When you have people who want to do the right thing, but they're working in companies that have business models that incentivize grabbing and exploiting people's attention as effectively as possible, 
and that's you know their quarterly goal, and that's what they get bonused on, and this kind of thing. And it's things like clicks, eyeballs, exactly. It's, it's yeah, these time are, spent, how long someone has just been on the exactly. Platform. Yeah, yeah. No, no person has those goals, right? Like nobody's like, I'm gonna see if I can maximize the amount of time I spent on Facebook today. You know, they're like, no human has those goals. So why are we allowing those to be the dominant goals for the technologies that billions of people use? And I think it's probably true that since we last spoke, there's there's evidence of more awareness inside the industry of this people you're not the first or the only person who had a slight epiphany working inside the business and then stepping outside trying to address this problem do you think that there is the beginnings of a wider sense among these well-intentioned people people who went into this business not to do harm but either to do good or to make money or both that they are actually caught up in something over which they've lost control I mean, I've been hardened over the last year by how quickly the conversation on all this has developed and how it seems like there is more awareness of the competition for attention as the dominant business model and, and sort of the negative effects it has. We're at a point where it could go in a really good direction or it could kind of go off the rails. And, and I feel like it's kind of tending toward the latter because I think what happens is, again, because we don't have a language for talking about the management of attention very well, so, for instance, after the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Mark Zuckerberg came out and, and, and said, we screwed up. But what he said we, they screwed up on was it was a privacy issue. It was a management of information issue. And so it's not just another one of these examples where the whole problem to begin with was that they have a platform that was enabling skilled actors to kind of persuade, propagandize in various ways. But then it, it went from attention management to information management. And I think, you know, that obviously then serves the interest, again, of people who have an interest in maintaining the status quo of a business model of advertising. We'll come on to advertising in a bit, because one of the really interesting things about your argument is you're trying to make advertising one of the central political mm. battles of our time, how to control mm. advertising. But on this question of language, I was also struck, you make the point, others have made it too, and you, you cite them, that in the dystopian futures that were imagined in the 20th century, there's the George Orwell one and the Aldous Huxley one, and the Orwell one, the boot stamping on the face forever, the threat to freedom is cruelty and oppression. And in the Aldous Huxley one, broadly speaking, the threat to freedom is pleasure. But then when I was reading that, I was wondering whether people, are we moving into a phase where people are starting to recognize that even the language of pleasure doesn't really capture this? So I take your point, it's not addiction, or the language of addiction doesn't help. But people increasingly feel that they're being drawn to things that not only aren't good for them, but that they don't actually enjoy anymore. Mm. I mean, that's one of the, the, like you say, no one gets up in the morning and thinks, let's see if I can spend 11 hours on social media today. And there's that kind of haunted look that people have. So I just, in a way, the Aldous Huxley thing almost feels like it doesn't quite stretch to this because you look at their faces, right? Look at the face of someone who's obsessively checking Twitter. It doesn't look fun to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to say that as we have you know, gotten deeper into the digital age, we're realizing that the threats to freedom have a wider boundary than we even thought. I mean, Neil Postman writing, I think in 1985, amusing ourselves to death, the idea of politics as entertainment being a problem. And one way to look, I guess, look at my book, and I reference Postman in, in the beginning of it is, it's not just entertainment, it's kind of rewards, broadly speaking. So in a psychological reward could be something that we don't actually enjoy. And one of the ones I talk about a lot is, is outrage in the book. You have this lovely story of when you were working at Google, 
and I've actually done something similar to this. You went to Wikipedia to get the list of cognitive biases, all, all of the ways in which we, as it were, our brains trick us or encourage us to suboptimal outcomes because we want immediate rewards or we prefer the present over the future or we overvalue our own time over other people's and everything else. And I've been to that page too for the book I was writing. I thought, well, I better check what they are. And as you start to read them, you start to think, whoa, these are all like going on in my head. And so you, which I didn't do, you printed it off and put it up above your desk so that you could try and, but there are a lot. And this technology is playing on quite a few of them. Yeah, if not all of them. I mean, just give us some examples. What are the ones that you think this technology uh, particularly? One is like just like hyperbolic discounting, for instance, how we, like you said, we value immediate rewards over long-term ones. And so if the technology makes it harder for us to, properly value those longer term rewards makes because it, the immediate ones are so available exactly basically. yeah then it's like uh eating potato chips all day rather than having the really nutritious meal later in the day that sort of thing i mean another is like the anchoring effect i was back in the u.s and their costco warehouse stores walk in and the first thing you see is the really expensive tvs and one of the reasons that that's useful for them as a business is because you anchor on a high price and other things seem have be a lower price by comparison and again like it's not just digital technology like when prices end in like 99 cents or 99 pence you know it's a similar thing but i think what's happening now is you know before it was kind of a handicraft activity and now it's essentially been industrialized and and it's all enveloping there's like you said there's not a space where you step you can't step outside of the costco store we're living in a costco store exactly or a yeah. variant on that yeah where, where it, we're being signaled at in these ways all the time. It's interesting you mentioned that because it reminds me of Mike Judge's movie Idiocracy where um, it's set in the future where everybody is kind of stupid and the Costco store is like the size of a whole neighborhood and the train goes right into the store. So it's it kind of relates to what you're saying, I guess. Yeah. So advertising is a big part of this story. It is one of the things that's hardest to get your head around with this world that we now live in. How important advertising is not just as a revenue generator for Facebook and Google, you, you quote the figures that they're hoovering up 80, 85% of online advertising revenue, and that's a big, big market. So that's a lot of a lot. Not just the money, but um, how much everything depends on it. It's the driver of this. And advertising, I think we traditionally thought, even in the kind of Mad Men era, it looked fun. Again, things that were once fun that aren't fun anymore. But it looked like an add-on. It was the thing that came after the thing, yep. the thing being industrial manufacturing, whatever services. Mm -hmm. And now it's the central driver, not just of our economy and not just of this economy, but also of the demands on our attention. So how did it happen? I mean, is it, and do you think that the Zuckerbergs of this world are as surprised as anyone? I mean, when he started up his nice idea, he presumably didn't think he was going into the advertising business. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who work at these companies still don't really think they're in the advertising business, especially if they don't work on ads. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do less is use the term social media because it implies it's a category of things designed to promote social behavior, you know, pro-sociality. But I think a better way to describe it is advertising companies with some social side effects. But we don't think about these that way. But I think if we did, and if we talked about them this way in the media, I think already that would shift, you know, something in the kind of public perception. I think the deeper problem is that um, we don't have a good definition of what advertising is anymore. Historically, you could kind of think of advertising as like being the, like you said, the exception to the rule of information delivery in a given medium. And I think what happened is that when the advertising industry, which had was in the 20th century, learning how to 
sort of exploit these various kind of non-rational biases, take advantage of our new knowledge of psychology. It kind of collided with this infrastructure of the internet. It it sort of transmogrified into something new and something that it, it, it was very, very different from what it had been in the past. And it went from kind of fulfilling demands to creating them. But it also, I think, in advertising, sometimes people use the term underwriting. So there's like the content that you've defined and advertising comes in to kind of support its creation after the fact. I think advertising kind of went from this place of underwriting the the media to overwriting the media. So its goals kind of became the dominant goals of the media. So whether it's a website or a social media platform, and that's, I think, in large part uh, where the genesis of these engagement metrics like clicks and views that many of the technologies we use every day optimize for. Um, I think it, advertising is kind of one of the, the main reasons that's the way it is. As we've been talking, I think we've both just clocked the fact that obviously at some point, this being the world of podcasting, advertising will intrude. It's just something we'll all have to deal with. Um, <laughs> so your book, it's got um, analysis and then it's got a kind of call to arms at the end that we have to really take it seriously. And I think it is to go back to your point about we haven't got the language for this. I mean, there was that tradition in the 60s and 70s and earlier, actually, that kind of Frankfurt School tradition that saw advertising as representative of a kind of creeping evil of essentially people becoming alienated from their own lives, and their own world. But it, it came out of a 20th century tradition of Marxism, and it had quite a lot of ideological underpinning. And then we kind of moved beyond that because history ended and <laughs> these nice shiny phones came along. And we almost now, I think, struggle, and your book really touches on this, to recognize that anything as seemingly trivial, or the word you use is petty, I think, mm. petty as advertising could be possibly the basic threat to our freedom. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say it's, it's the, the way in which advertising, a certain sort of advertising incentivizes competition for our mere attention. Because I think there are forms of advertising that, you know, if it's like sponsored support for my goals that I want to achieve in life, I think there are forms of advertising, you know, if we can nudge it in that direction, that would be great. But I think right now under this umbrella of advertising, most of it is is just grabbing people's attention and doing whatever you need to do to get it. To, to get it yeah. And it's almost as if no one's goals are being taken seriously anymore. It's not just our goals, but the advertisers, or that is the social media companies, aren't thinking about goals either. They're, they're on this treadmill too, because right. it's a pretty competitive world there. And I know they have these monopolies, but they're also terrified of losing their grip. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a striking dissonance between, you know, the goals that these companies say that they're trying to promote in our own lives, you know, making our lives more connected, you know, more successful, et cetera. But then you look at what they're actually designing the system toward. And this is, I think, why I think the recent brouhaha about Facebook, I think they're happy probably to talk about issues of privacy and data protection because it means they don't have to talk about these existential questions. Like, what is their technology for? Like, what is it supposed to be doing in our lives? To me, that just gets right at the question of advertising. Um, and also, if they, if they talk about privacy, the suggestion is that there is a fix which is consistent with their raison d'etre, which is their business model. But if they talk about advertising, we'll talk in a second about what you think the fix is, but the fear for them is that there is no fix right. which doesn't do them in. Right. I mean, I think there is a way of changing their advertising so that it would be more aligned with people's goals and interests. I just think that's not something that, if you want to you know, keep the status quo, that's something you don't want to do. But I mean, I, I hear this all the time and it's, it's kind of getting frustrating actually. Like I'll read news articles and people say, 
Facebook's business model is selling your data. And it's fascinating that like this continues to be said because it's just so patently false. The business model is the capture and resale of our attention and data is one thing that they can use to kind of amplify the success of that. And I think this isn't called out enough in the media when, it, when it's mentioned because Again, it's where these issues of attention management just get reframed as questions of information management. And that's one of the things you're pushing back on. So yeah. you, you don't want us to call it the information age. You don't want us to call it the data age. You want us to call it the attention economy. Yeah, I mean, the term I use in the book is like, you know, age of attention would be a better word than the information age. But I do think that you know, the more we understood as users that we're paying with our attention, and that that's the nature of the transaction we're making. Yeah, I think absolutely. And it's, it's astonishing how few people even realize that this is the case. So what do you think we can do to fix this? To start with advertising, because you've got a few suggestions. And as you say, as always with these kinds of books, if you absolutely knew how to fix it, mm. we would fix it. Um, and so these are just ideas you're throwing out there. But what can we do about the way in which this model of advertising and attention capture has captured our lives? The fundamental question for society to answer is what forms of psychological manipulation will we consider to be acceptable business models? I think having that conversation and then having that inform policy would be a great step forward. Whether or not we can have that conversation, given the way the media is currently structured, is a different question. You know, I'm always interested just on the point of language, you know, whenever words come up to describe things that we didn't have words for before, like clickbait, like I don't know what I called clickbait before, before the word clickbait. Uh, So I think linguistic innovation has a role to play. I mean, I'm increasingly pessimistic about the possibility of real reform for the current set of services that that people use that are dominant, like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. I think that to really move things in the right direction, you have to intervene really early on in the adoption curve of all this stuff. And so, I don't know, I'd love to be proven wrong on this, but I I fear it might be too late for, for these systems where there are so many entrenched interests. I think focusing on these emerging technologies like, you know, these kind of voice interfaces that people are bringing into their homes, like Google Alexa, Home, Alexa, et cetera. Yeah. That's a place where I think some great attention could really be paid right now. I think also AI, ethics. There's a, a lot of people in academia working on this stuff and, and have been for years. And I think they're just, you know, the academic tech ethics and the, the tech industry have been kind of these silos. And I think some cross-pollination across these silos would be really great. But I do think there's a role for regulation for policy here. Like, I'd love to see something kind of like an X prize or some kind of incentive for the development of a business model that's as scalable, as monetizable as advertising, but doesn't require the design to then be sort of uh, divergent from users' interests. Um, in the book, I, t- I talk about a few other things. I mean, the, the challenge is this, this is a whole systemic problem, and there's no one solution that's going to really do the trick. So you talk about the possibility of a kind of Hippocratic oath for designers. And when I read that, I thought the reason that doctors are willing to think in those terms is they have a pretty valorized idea of the business they're in. They're in the business of life and death. And in a sense, it, it matches their own sense of their importance. And I suspect most people, particularly when you tell them you're really in the advertising business, kind of think there's a sort of mismatch between the idea of a Hippocratic oath and being in. And yet your whole point is that they don't get it's not quite life and death, but it's not far off. I mean, you, there are moments in this where you sound fairly close to thinking that this is about the possibility of leading a meaningful human life, in which case, yeah, doctors and advertisers are in the same business. Yeah, I mean, I think... Sort of. What I would love to see is us come to kind of think and talk about the role of these technologies in our lives 
and especially as they were part of the attention economy, as essentially kind of a first order kind of governance of our lives. I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, government and cybernetics, the first part of each of those, govern and, and cyber, they both stem from the same Greek root, like kibera to steer or guide. And I think, you know, if we think of these as like a government of our lives that has sort of total play over our attentional faculties, it sort of has enormous power, but very little accountability. We could come up with a principle like, you know, no manipulation without representation or something like that, but some kind of democratic, more democratic control over these things that govern our moment-to-moment attention seems to me very reasonable to, to demand. So I'd love to be able to find a way to think and talk about this as the political problem it is and not as a design problem. And I think that's one of the big rhetorical risks in the near, near term is that political issues will be reframed as design issues. And I was in Silicon Valley recently, and I was thinking while I was there about a paper Bruno Latour wrote a little while back where he said the term design seems to have replaced the term revolution. And I think there's something in that that could inform a way out of out of this. But So I've got a couple more questions, one at the end about the politics, but first one about the technology, I guess, which is, you mentioned AI. So one of my anxieties here is, and I suppose it would chime with some of your pessimism about some things being too late, is that AI is moving on a pace. And the reason is because of these kind of deep learning techniques that have been devised, which are basically still trawling through massive amounts of data and looking for patterns and then optimizing those patterns and then the machines learn from their own mistakes. The data that they're trawling through is on a lot of it is data that is being produced by this technology which is already feeding our cognitive biases and that kind of AI at least unregulated must surely risk entrenching all of these features because it's feeding the the information that it's feeding on is information being produced in the attention economy, in the age of attention, loss of attention. This must be a dangerous moment. I mean, if this is the way AI is going, AI is not the thing that people once dreamed of as these machines that might think like us even better than us or our better selves. It's just trawling our behaviors, looking for patterns and acting on that in ways that mimic the things that we're now doing. Do you have that? I mean, I have a real fear around this that... that as it were, we're building thinking machines in the age in which our cognitive biases are being exaggerated and amplified. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're going to think thinking is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think with AI, one of the dangers is that the design logic is pushed down to kind of the automation layer and, and the reasons why the design is the way it is become less auditable, less transparent. But I think another is exactly right. Like it's a, an amplifier of this general persuasiveness that kind of embodies these different technologies we use. And it's important that there's some people calling for auditing of algorithms, being able to know if a decision is made about you, say for a credit card application or whatever, that you'd be able to question why that was made. So kind of auditing of algorithms. I think that's important, but I think in my mind, I think that all of this data and all these systems, because they, they could still be used well if they're aligned with human interests. I think one of the things that it seems like is important to, to demand right now is, is a kind of transparency of the persuasive design goals of, of technologies. I mean, it's kind of weird we don't have this already. If, if there's a system that's crunching data about me, but it helps me do the things I want to do in an, an intelligent way, I mean, that that's a, where it ought to go. So it, it gets back to kind of the existential purpose of these technologies. And I think when technologies emerge in a kind of context of capabilities-based design, like Facebook or say Google Glass or something like this, where they're, they're, it's more about look at this cool thing you know, rather than here's a need that needs to be filled, I think then it's harder to have these conversations. Yeah, and Facebook, the need that needed to be filled was Mark Zuckerberg rating girls 
in Harvard, which is not Literally. a de- not a deep human need. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> may have been for him, but um, so the last one is the one we've done quite well, at, and insofar as we failed this test, I failed it because I was quoting Tina Brown. So we haven't used the T word except once. Mm. Talking about 1988, call waiting Donald Trump as opposed to 2018 Twitter or post Twitter Donald Trump. But it's where we ended up last time. So we talked a lot last time we discussed this when your book, when you were sort of thinking through these ideas about the ways in which he's the perfect politician for the attention age. Um, and he's exploiting it. But also, again, you use that word here, the pettiness mm-hmm. of Trump and the pettiness of his politics. But that basic chicken and egg problem is still there, which is most of your solutions are solutions of government and governance. They require regulation, but they also require political will. They require a democratic conversation about what we value. And this technology is corroding our capacity for that kind of collective action. And I think you're pretty clear about that. So the thing that will be the solution is the thing that is at the heart of the problem. Mm -hmm. That's that problem hasn't changed since we talked about it last time. And if anything, it's really not changed in the sense that it looks harder and harder to see a way around it. Yeah, that's the core problem. And um, I mean, one thing I've been thinking about lately is as I've given talks in different countries, I've noticed that it seems like different cultures have different degrees of awareness of these issues and willingness to talk about them and, and even push back against them. And I think there might be an interesting kind of comparative cultural. So, where are people most willing this. to push back? In your what I've seen is like you know Netherlands, France, Germany uh, in particular. I was in Norway, and it seemed like there was uh, there were some really interesting cultural dynamics there. That and does it include particularly awareness that this isn't just about privacy and, and surveillance? This is about our attention and therefore our capacity to think about our goals in life. I mean, I think. In my mind, it's about the degree to which certain countries have existing frameworks of identity and culture on which they can fall back on. I think the challenge, you know, in the U.S. is you're expected to create this on your own. You know, de novo, every individual, there's not as much history, say, to draw on as there is here in Europe. But but I feel like where there are more stable kind of identity constructs, it seems like there's a bit more stable footing to look at what these technologies are doing to our individual lives, our group lives. And actually in the US, I think Utah is a really interesting place. And I haven't probed this in depth, but I think there's something there's something similar in Utah in the way that there's a, a kind of common identity, presumably kind of like a religious identity that, that seems kind of similar to what you see in Europe in the way that it gives people something to fall back on. Because as I talk about, you know, in the book, like in the background of all of this is kind of modernism, secularism, and the way in which all these sort of environmental structures that designed our life towards certain values are kind of gone now. And so there's just even more of that work needs to be put on us. So, And just to be clear, the thing that people can fall back on is a sense of goals and values that somehow isn't all overwritten by this technology. Yeah, I think it's a sense of, of coherence of identity, basically. And like, I think it was McLuhan, you know, who said, violence is a quest for identity. And I think, you know, to the extent that the digital world is becoming more outrageous, more maybe symbolically violent, we might say, I mean, so much of what's happening on social media is not information sharing, it's social signaling, right? Since the last podcast, one thinker I, I've really drawn is Jan Werner Mueller, who I think you have. Who we on. spoke to and we yeah. did, yeah. Um, the way he talks about populism as a kind of moralizing of the political realm, 
And I think that there's something about the way in which these dynamics of outrage are kind of activating or speaking to a certain moral psychology that seems plausible as a kind of explanation or partial explanation for this wave of impulsive, outrageous kind of political activity uh, across Western liberal democracies who have different economies, different languages, cultures, etc. So so the, the populist wave in the attention economy is a search for the thing that this way of living and this way that we're responding to all the sort of pressures and impulses on us is, is taking away from us. Is it is it the sort of the version in the attention economy of the search for meaning? Is that what you're saying? I think it's it's reasonable to, to read it, yeah, as a search for meaning or search for ways to create meaning, a kind of signaling in-group, out-group, you know, kind of affiliations. And this is why I think that, you know, the populism is normally talked about in terms of kind of stuff on the right, but it seems to me like on the left in kind of areas of identity politics or this kind of thing where it's about questions of identity, it seems like we see those same kind of, of dynamics at play. Stand Out of Our Light is going to be published by Cambridge University Press and it is going to be available open access. What that means is you'll, you can download it for free. It's coming out at the end of May. It's definitely worth reading. We'll tweet the link to James's earlier interview with me at tppodcast underscore. We also did a really interesting conversation with Tim O'Reilly, the tech guru from Silicon Valley, and we'll tweet the link to that too. Helen and Chris, one of the Chrises, won't tell you which one, will be back with us next week, so do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.